God, we recognize you this morning as our Lord and our Father. And both speak so much to our hearts. Both communicate such consolation to us. Thank you for all that you are. We pray that you would reveal yourself to us afresh this morning so that our hearts are grounded in great truths about you and so that we are stabilized when all around my soul gives way we would feel in our hearts that he then is all our hope and stay that you are a solid rock you are a lord and sovereign so remind us of these truths Lord and send them deeply down into the soil of our hearts so that we might stand in awe of you and worship you and trust you. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, thanks again for being here this morning as we continue our School of the Word class on doctrinal essentials. This morning we're back for one more installment on the doctrine of God. If you've been here in past weeks, uh, we've done the doctrine of doctrines related to God's moral attributes, the attributes of his goodness, and then we did doctrines related to God's mental attributes, you might say, his knowledge. And then last week, oh, if you, have, if you need notes, go ahead and raise your hand. We've got some notes we can pass to you. And last week, uh, Bill Treby served by teaching on justification and adoption and some of the doctrines of salvation. We'll pick up on some more of those next week. So this morning we return for our our last installment of the doctrine of God. We're going to look this morning at the attributes of lordship. We know that there are things about God that are going to be mysterious to us, right? Uh, And so we're not going to settle those things and kind of tie a neat bow on top of that for the rest of our lives. So let's adjust our expectations if they were there. We're not going to solve these things this morning. We're going to leave we have mystery now, and we're going to leave with mystery in 40 or 45 minutes. So let's, uh, really, we, what we want to do is look to God's word and see, Lord, show us all that you are and help us to take it in as much as we in our finite minds are capable of taking it in and help us at the end of the day, no matter what we know or feel, to trust you, that you're good, that you're sovereign overall. So these are mysteries, and, and I think, we're going to keenly feel the mystery of God when we're in this neck of the woods of, of God's attributes. And part of that is because of our cultural bias. Our culture doesn't speak the language of, of the Bible when it comes to sovereignty. Our culture very much values the concept of self-sovereignty, self-government. You are autonomous. You do whatever you want. Our culture worships choice, personal individualism and your right to do whatever in the world you want to do and nobody can tell you what's right and wrong for your own life. You are your own potter. You are not clay. You are a potter. Mold your world. Shape your world. Shape your life as you see fit. That is, that's not the message I think we're going to see of the Bible. Matter of fact, I think when we read our Bibles and we think of the concept of free will, the first being that should come to mind is God. God is free. God is autonomous. And so we're going to look at some of these things this morning under the attributes of lordship. 
Let's begin with the self-existence of God. We could use various terms to describe this. Historically, many theologians have called this the doctrine of divine aseity. And that just comes from two Latin words, meaning from himself or by himself. This is also called the doctrine of God's independence or freedom or self-existence. Those kind of all are used the same way. Now, that sounds really stuffy. It sounds really kind of formal and, and heady, but it's not stuffy. Try this out on the kids. You try this doctrine of aseity out on the kids, and you, you sit and you gather children from the church or your own children, your grandchildren, gather them around and open the book of Genesis and read the creation narrative and then ask them some questions. Who made the sun? And they'll say, God did. Start listing off who made trees, grass, T-Rex, great white sharks, dragonflies, tree frogs, and you, you're naming all these things, and what are they saying? Every time you ask, who made this, who made this? And they're saying, God made that. And then you ask another question, and you say, if God made all those things, who made God? And they'll scratch their heads. They'll have these puzzled looks on their faces. And of course, the answer is what? No one. Well, then how does God have existence? And the answer to that question is, God is self-existent. God is eternally self-existent. He has the power of being within himself, which is to say he is utterly distinct from everything that is created. This is really the fundamental distinction between God and everything else is his aseity. He is from himself. He exists by himself. He is in a category all his own. This is what we're talking about when we talk about aseity or the self-existence of God. Psalm 90 verse 2, Before the mountains were born, or you brought forth the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. Now, if you're going to try to figure this out, let me just save you some time in a bottle of Excedrin. You're not going to figure this out. You can't go back. In our finite minds, we just cannot take this in. We simply have to recognize it and worship God. God, the God who is eternally self-existent, uncreated. There is one being in the universe that is not derived. Everything and everyone else is derived and dependent. God is not derived. God is not dependent. He is independent. He is self-sufficient. We are not autonomous. God is. And so God's freedom to act is bound only by his own holy nature. There's nothing above God to which he must appeal so that he can act. It's not like sometimes we can speak in this way as though there's some kind of law to which God himself must conform. No, the only law that governs God is his own nature. He is true to his own nature. He himself, there is no such thing as an entity of wisdom, an entity of goodness, an entity of law. God himself is wisdom in its fullness. He is the perfection of beauty. So everything that we would say is beautiful is a derived beauty. And it's only relatively beautiful insofar as it conforms to things that we see in God. God is the standard of goodness, beauty, truth, wisdom, all things, the standard of righteousness. So there's nothing and no one above him to which he must appeal. He is free. And there's nothing beneath him in his creation to which he must appeal. There's nothing in his creation that can manipulate him. He is free. He is independent. He is self-sufficient. 
He created the world and humankind freely. This is really important. Not out of necessity. In other words, God doesn't have a man-shaped hole in his heart that only you can fill. Right? He, he doesn't need, he's not in a needy relationship with creation. You might say that the road of dependence only goes in one direction. We need God. We depend on God. That is not reciprocated. We don't say, I need you, and he says, no, I need you more. No, he doesn't need us. He doesn't need his creation. He creates freely out of the abundance of his grace. And so it's not as though there's a, you know, that proverbial place on his back that he can't scratch, so he makes humans, so that we can scratch that place for him. He's, oh, yeah, that's why I made you. Thank you so much. A little lower. No, that's, that's not our God. He is, he is self-sufficient. He sustains us. He made us. He does not depend on his creation. Acts 17, Paul is speaking to the Athenians at the Areopagus, and he says, The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, right? The Roman pantheon, the Greek pantheon, they had these different regional gods. You know, they had the God of the sea and the God of love and the God of crops and agriculture and the God of this and that. And, and so if you were going to cross the sea and make a voyage, you would offer a sacrifice to the God of the sea. And when you offered that sacrifice, you would basically being, basically your, your point of view was, I scratch your back and offer you the sacrifice that you want, and then you scratch my back and take me safely across the sea. The, Paul is clarifying for these, for these pagans in Athens, and he said, the God who is there is Lord of both heaven and earth. He is not a tribal deity. He owns it all. He says he does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needed anything. Since, this is why he doesn't need anything, he's the one who gives. He himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. So where is Paul taking this with his audience? He is saying, God made you. God owns you. You owe him your life, your existence, the breath that you're breathing right now. Translation, you can't barter with him. He doesn't need anything that you have. He is self-sufficient. So we can't say to God, unless you give me this blessing, then I won't give you what you need. And I won't sing the songs that we both know you need your songs. And so I won't sing those songs until you bless me in this particular way. God is not that way. He is is a God of self-dependence and self-sufficiency. The name that God gave from the very beginning to his covenant people When Moses is about to go, he's being called to go and rescue God's people from Egypt. And Moses says, I'm going to go. It's been 450 years since they've served the one true and living God. And when I go and say, God wants to set you guys free and he's going to use me to do it, they're going to turn around and say, you're going to have to be more specific, Moses. Which God? And Moses says, when they ask me for your name, what do I say? And God uses his name of aseity. He says, tell them, I am has sent you. Tell them, that is, that the only uncreated, eternally self-existing God is sending you. In other words, this is not going to be a problem. He is in a category all his own. Pharaoh is nowhere close. The gods of Egypt are nowhere close. God's going to get you out because he is the God of aseity. 
He is the God of independence. And so when an eternally self-existing God aims to do something, he does it, right? And that takes us into one of the implications of aseity is omnipotence, which the Bible clearly teaches. Omnipotence is a compound, again, kind of like aseity. It's a compound of two Latin words, omni meaning all, and potentia meaning powerful. God is all-powerful. When we talk about God being all-powerful, we mean that God is able to do all his holy will. That's Wayne Grudem's definition. God is able to do all his holy will. You might say, well, that's kind of formal sounding. Why don't we just say God can do anything? Well, because the Bible doesn't necessarily say that. We have to be more accurate and precise because there are wonderful things, thanks be to God, that he can't do. God cannot lie. Isn't that good news? He can't lie. God cannot die. That is also very good news. God cannot deny himself. God must be true to his own nature. And so we say, when we're talking about omnipotence, we're talking about God being able to do all his holy will. Another thing that omnipotence doesn't necessarily mean is that God does everything that he can do. There are, theoretically, there are an infinite number of things that an omnipotent God could do that he doesn't do. He could create a race of aliens. Some people actually think he has. He could make a hundred more worlds this morning if he wanted to. That wouldn't be anything out of bounds or out of the realm of possibility. God could do any number, any infinite number of things that he doesn't necessarily do. So to say that God is all-powerful is simply to say that anything God wants to do, he can do. And we might add, with ease. Nothing is too difficult for God. It's not as though, you know, I think sometimes we might read the Bible in an overly literalistic way. So we could read, you know, the Sabbath rest, he rested on the seventh day, as though God was exhausted. After six days of making, I am just, just sweating and I'm worn out and I need a couch somewhere. So let me just, just lay down for a day and chill out. God doesn't exert energy. He speaks and everything comes into being. He doesn't work for things. He is omni-capable. He is omnipotent and all-powerful. Job 23 says, he stands alone and who can oppose him? He does whatever he pleases. Isaiah 14, the Lord of hosts has sworn, these are God's words, as I have planned, so shall it be. And as I have purposed, so shall it stand that I will break the Assyrian in my land. And on my mountains trample him underfoot, and his yoke shall depart from them, and his burden from their shoulder. This is the purpose that is purposed concerning the whole earth, and this is the hand that is stretched out over all the nations. For the Lord of hosts has purposed, and who will annul it? His hand is stretched out, and who will turn it back? My dad used to always quote a lady who said, Your arms are too short to box with God. (laughs) And that is frequently the message of the prophets. Don't be afraid of the nations that oppose you. Their arms are too short to box with God. Job 42, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. Though God is not a tribal deity, his kingdom is over all creation. There is no one who rivals him. I think that we wouldn't be going too far to say that in God's own experience, he is unfamiliar, completely unfamiliar with the concept of competition. He doesn't know experientially 
what it means to compete for sovereignty, to have a rival who he's outsmarted by or potentially intimidated by. He's never been intimidated in his eternal life. He is God Almighty. The Bible speaks of God's power and his capability, and you might say his immensity, just his size, his impressive stature in many different ways. My family went to the beach just a few weeks ago, and as I was out in the water playing with the kids, I remembered a story that I heard from Dr. Bruce Ware, who's an author, he's a professor uh, at a seminary, and Bruce Ware was speaking at a worship conference a couple of years ago, and he, he was talking about when he went to the beach with his family, and he was trying to teach his daughter, this was many years ago, trying to teach his daughter about something about God's size and his capability. And so he said, and he's, like any young child, they think that their dad is just huge. Even if he's not all that big, they just think, you're just so big, and you can do anything you want. You can whoop anybody who comes to the house and tries to get in. And, and so he said to his daughter, they're out there by the beach, and he says, you see dad's big old hands? He says, I want you to see something. I'm going to run out into the, into the water, and I'm going to scoop up as much water as I can in these great big hands, and I want you to tell me how far the water level drops. And so he runs out into the water, and he scoops up the water. He says, do you see it? And she nods, and then he drops the water, and he runs over there, and he says, so what would you see? How much did the water level go down? And she looked puzzled. She said, Dad, I, I didn't see it go down at all. And then he read to her, Isaiah 40, 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? And he said, baby, if God were to scoop up the water with his hands, there would be no water left. The ocean bed would be dry. And not only this ocean, all the oceans, all the lakes, all the rivers, all the streams can be held in the palm of God's hands. Babe, stand in awe of our great God. I remember having a nightmare (coughs) when I was a kid about a lion attacking me. And I actually still have nightmares. They're mostly about crocodiles if I'm being attacked by any kind of... (laughs) And I can't do what I used to do. On this particular occasion, I remember this nightmare very well. I remember running down the hall in the darkness... And, and going into the, my parents' room and telling my mom, and I don't think my dad stirred, I don't think he ever knew about this. And of course, she's asking, well, what's, what's wrong? What's going on? And I told her about the lion. She said, you just lay here between your dad and I. And she said, that mean old lion's not going to come around here. And she said, and if he does, I'll beat him up. <laughs> you know, that seemed perfectly rational to me. <laughs> that was, I slept like a baby. I was just totally convinced that that was absolutely the truth. Now, my mom was doing a child psychology job on me, also known as lying, because if, if the lion had come into the room, we'd all be dead, all of us. We would be dead, but not so with God. There's a prowling lion seeking whom he may devour, and God owns him all day, every day, and twice on Sunday. God is the God over all. Satan is not unleashed in God's world. Martin Luther said, the devil is God's devil. He can't do anything directly on his own authority. He must appeal to God. God is sovereign. That's what that means. There are not two sovereigns in the world. Actually, dualistic philosophy speaks in that kind of way. It speaks of 
these kind of equal and opposite authorities in the world. There's a force of good that's doing all that it can to bring about good in the world, and there's an equal and opposite force of evil. This is yin-yang, this is Star Wars, right? And there are these equal opposite forces duking it out. And history is the, is the ring in which that, max has, that, that match has been played out. And so we'll see what happens in the future as good and evil both fight for control. But that's not the God that we read about in the Scripture. The reason God speaks with such certainty about the future and about his purposes and promises for the future is because God has a plan. And quite simply, no one can stop him. He is going to execute his sovereign plan and there is no one who can thwart him or hold his arm back. God's right arm is the stuff of legend in Old Testament history. He bears that right arm and the nations tremble before him because he is God Almighty. Consider one of the great lions of the Old Testament who threatened to destroy God's people utterly, King Sennacherib. He was the ruler of the up-and-coming kingdom of Assyria. And Sennacherib actually had been raised up by God. He didn't sufficiently realize it was God who was, for his own good reasons and purposes, in part to discipline his idolatrous people. It was God who had given power to the kingdom of Assyria. And Sennacherib got arrogant. And he started to think, I'm doing this on my own. Matter of fact, I can turn against God's people. I am so powerful. I have... I've schooled nation after nation after nation. And this little nation of Israel, what are they going to do? And Sennacherib talks smack to God's people. Through his messenger, he says to Israel, do not let Hezekiah make you trust in the Lord by saying, the Lord will surely deliver us and this city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. <laughs> Who among all the gods of the lands have delivered their lands out of my hand that the Lord should deliver Jerusalem out of my hand. Famous last words. The problem is that King Sennacherib had never met the God of Israel. He had never met the God of aseity, the God of omnipotence. And so if you just read the very next chapter, you find out what happened when Sennacherib talked smack to the Lord God Almighty. And that episode, that historical account in 2 Kings 19 inspired a poem by famed poet Lord Byron describing the encounter, and I think he captures it poignantly, powerfully. The Assyrian came down like the wolf on the fold, and his cohorts were gleaming in purple and gold, and the sheen of their spears was like stars on the sea when the blue wave rolls nightly on deep Galilee. Like the leaves of the forest when summer is green, that host with their banners at sunset were seen. Like the leaves of the forest when autumn hath blown, that host on the morrow lay withered and strown. For the angel of death spread his wings on the blast and breathed in the face of the foe as he passed. And the eyes of the sleepers waxed deadly and chill and their hearts but once heaved and forever grew still, and there lay the steed with his nostrils all wide, but through it there rolled not the breath of his pride, and the foam of his gasping lay white on the turf and cold as the spray of the rock-beating surf. 
And there lay the rider, distorted and pale, with the dew on his brow and the rust on his mail. And the tents were all silent, the banners alone, the lances unlifted, the trumpet unblown. And the widows of Asher are loud in their wail, and the idols are broke in the temple of Baal. And the might of the Gentile, unsmote by the sword, hath melted like snow in the glance of the Lord. It's beautiful. 185,000 dead Assyrians, unsmote by the sword, smitten by the very glance of an omnipotent God who doesn't play. And no one, not even, not even King Sennacherib, can talk smack to God Almighty. When we talk about God's omnipotence, we are at the same time talking about what God wills. We're talking about sovereignty. Really, you could look at omnipotence as the kind of executive arm of sovereignty, the administrator of sovereignty. God's power is sent in the service of his will. Things don't just happen. God sends his arm to do what his heart and his will have decided and decreed. So now we're talking about sovereignty. Look at this quote from Wayne Grudem. Scripture frequently indicates God's will as the final or most ultimate reason for everything that happens. Paul refers to God as the one who accomplishes all things according to the counsel of his will. The phrase here translated all things, ta panta, is used frequently by Paul to refer to everything that exists or everything in creation. Now, there is mystery here and humility is needed here because we tend to love to quote that God's ways are not our ways until his ways really are not our ways, until God doesn't make sense to us, he does something that doesn't seem right or fair, that doesn't register with my own instincts of what I would do if I were God. And so we need to humble ourselves before God's word. So let's think about some of the implications of sovereignty and omnipotence. I'm going to ask some questions. These are not trick questions. Their answers should be fairly obvious. Is cancer more powerful than God? No. Is death more powerful than God? Is Satan more powerful than God? Is sin more powerful than God. And yet, sin captures believers and brings them into bondage. Cancer takes a life of a believer. Death comes seemingly too early. Satan seems to wreak havoc. How do do we account for this in light of God's omnipotence over all things? Cancer is not all-powerful. Cancer doesn't run wild as a maverick in God's world and does what it wills and God's trying to respond to cancer and what it does and death. How do we account for this? What we tend to do is run to God's rescue and seek to distance him from all suffering, all calamity and catastrophe in the world. We want to make sure God's fingerprints aren't anywhere near the scene of sin or suffering. But but then we have to come back to what we were just answering, the questions we were just answering. Is God in control of all things? Or is he in, in control of some things? Are there two steering wheels on the vehicle of history? One belongs to God, and one belongs to Satan. 
And so sometimes the history steers in this direction because Satan's steering wheel works better at that particular moment. And then God steers back in his direction and it just goes back and forth. Is God sovereign over all the good things? And Satan or some impersonal force of evil is sovereign over all the bad things. Now some don't hesitate to say just that. Again, that's dualistic philosophy. Don't hesitate to say that God's sovereign over all the good things. Satan or some impersonal force of evil is sovereign over all the bad things. You can read Harold Kushner's best-selling book, When Bad Things Happen to Good People. That's the argument. You have to forgive God. He's made a world that he can't control. He's trying. He's trying. He loves you. But he, he can't steer everything in his direction. There's another steering wheel on the world. That's the premise of Kushner's book. And many have resonated with it to the tune of New York Times bestseller. Nikos Kazantzakis, a Greek philosopher of the 20th century, one of the most probably important and famed philosophers of the 20th century, wrote the following, My God is not almighty. He struggles, for he is in peril every moment. He trembles and stumbles in every living thing, and he cries out. He is defeated incessantly, but rises again, full of blood and earth, to throw himself into the battle once more. He is full of wounds. His eyes are filled with fear and stubbornness. His jawbones and temples are splintered. But he does not surrender. He ascends. He ascends with his feet, with his hands, biting his lips, undaunted. According to God's word, this philosopher has it perfectly wrong. Perfectly wrong. In every case, the Bible says that's foolishness. God is not that vulnerable weakling of a deity that Kazantzakis thinks he is. Look at these verses. I wish I had time to comment on every one of these or just to study through them together. You can go back and read them yourself. Sovereign in creation and the preservation of all created things. Worthy are you, Lord, our Lord and God, to receive (coughs) glory and honor and power. For you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. God is sovereign over all governments. The king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord He turns it wherever he will. Romans 13, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. This is the time in which Nero, of all people, is emperor over Rome. This is a wicked emperor. Paul says there are no authorities that end up rising to the throne apart from God's sovereignty. It's not like God accidentally took the day off and realized, oh, Nero got in? Oh, now what am I going to do? God is sovereign. We have to have a category for why he would ever install a Nero. But ultimately, whether we figure that out or not, we trust God is good. Nero was on the throne and God was sovereign. He did not lose control the day that Nero came into office. Sovereign in salvation. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy I will have compassion on whom I have compassion, so then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Romans 8, 29 and 30. (coughs) For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. Listen here, this is called the golden chain of redemption historically. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. This text clearly means that those who were predestined to salvation all get there. They are gl- the same group 
that was predestined is called. That same group is justified. That same group is glorified. When God says you're going to get there, you're going to get there. He's not going to lose you. He's all-powerful. He's sovereign. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life, believed. He's sovereign in regeneration, James 1.18. Of his own will he brought us forth by the word of truth, that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. He's sovereign in sanctification. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your salvation. So we have a job to do. We have a responsibility with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God is sovereign in the suffering of believers. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. (coughs) He is sovereign over our life and lot. James 4, instead you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father? But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you are more value than many sparrows. In Psalm 139, 16, Your eyes saw my unformed substance. In your book were written, every one of them, the days that were formed for me, when as yet there was none of them. God knows from before we're born how many days we're going to live on this earth. Now, I might feel very free, and in my arrogance, I might say, oh yeah, you knew the number? Did you know I was going to do this? And run out the door, jump off the balcony head first, and it's over. And I would get to heaven and God would say, look at the X, it's on the calendar for today. I knew you were going to be dumb and do that in your arrogance. Right? God knows. He knows the number of our days and that factors in our free will decisions. Dumb as they might be, that all of that is included in the sovereign ordination of God. Sovereign in his freedom to do as he pleases. You turn things upside down, Isaiah writes. Shall the potter be regarded as the clay? That the thing made should say of its maker, he did not make me? Or the thing formed say of him who formed it, he has no understanding? Psalm 115.3, our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Not simply to say that he can do all that he pleases if he wants to. He does all that he pleases. God doesn't have sovereignty He uses sovereignty. He is sovereign. Daniel 4.35. Daniel is one of the most sovereignty-laden books in the Bible. I was reading through Daniel 11 just a couple of months ago. You know how if you say a word over and over, the word starts to sound weird in your own ears? The word shall started to sound really strange. And I thought, there are so many shalls. I went back and counted. 122 shalls in one chapter of the Bible. And those shalls cover a vast expanse of free human decisions. And God is saying, it shall happen. And then this shall happen. Then this one will rise up. And then this one shall do this. All these shalls are sovereign shalls. They will be accomplished. He writes in Daniel 4.35, All the inhabitants of the earth are counted as nothing. And he does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. The open theists are wrong that God doesn't interfere with free creatures. God is all over the place in his sovereignty, among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? God is sovereign over evil and calamity. Isaiah 45, I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord 
who does all these things. Now, in that context, go back and read Isaiah 45. You know what he's talking about. This is not some small issue, some kind of you know, little problem. This is Cyrus being raised up to conquer God's own people. God says, I'm in charge. You won't be able to figure this out, but trust me, I have a plan, I have a purpose. I'm raising up Cyrus. Exodus 4.11, Then the Lord said to him, Who has made man's mouth? Who makes him mute or deaf or seeing or blind? Is it not I, the Lord? In the story of Job, it's clear that Satan doesn't have direct access to Job, right? God, he comes and God says, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan says, yeah, you know why he serves you? Because you blessed him. You've made up this hedge of protection around him. You take down the hedge, he'll curse you to your face. God takes down the hedge. God says, here's what you can do, here's what you can't do. Satan does just that and no further. He does only what God has allowed him to do. He can't move a muscle beyond God's command concerning Job. God is sovereign over the greatest atrocity in history, Christ's suffering. Acts 2, men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men, God raised him up. Two things happening at the very same time. God's sovereignty planned and ordained. Not only that he would die, but how. How he would die. Who would be involved. All that was ordained. And yet, they are held responsible. You crucified him. You weren't puppets on a string. You did this volitionally. There was no coercion involved. God's sovereignty is a mystery. He is sovereign over all things, and yet... Wicked people do wicked things, breaking the law of God. It says lawless men have done this. Same thing in Acts 4. Truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Again, that's the mystery those responsible for having Christ crucified are held as responsible and blameworthy. They did it freely, and yet God sovereignly ordained that it would happen just as it happened. So at the same time, two sides are involved. On the one hand, they were motivated by malice and murder and sin. And God ordained it motivated by righteousness, conforming to his own Standards of righteousness. God ordained this out of righteous motivations. He knew his glory would go on full display in redemption, in revealing his righteousness and his love. It's similar in that way to the story of Joseph. Where Joseph's brothers did sinfully to Joseph, selling him into slavery, throwing him into the pit. All of that happened. Potiphar's wife, all these different sinful characters are involved. You come to the end of the story where it's going to be resolved and the brothers are standing there in repentance and contrition before Joseph and Joseph says, it's okay. You meant this for evil. All of the wicked things that happened were meant by wicked people for evil. But God meant it. God ordained all of this for good. God sovereignly ordained all of it and yet he did it for righteous reasons. 
these verses we've looked at here, they don't portray a God who has revoked his sovereignty. God's word doesn't, pick, doesn't depict the world, a world in which God is fighting for control. Now, initially, I think we can see how this might seem attractive to go there. Because it, it, you might say it gets God off the hook. It makes us more comfortable with God because he's more like us. The mystery is gone. I don't have to sort out how two things can be true at the same time. How God can be good, how human choices can be real, not puppets on a string, how human responsibility is real, and yet God ordains all things. If I run in the direction of dualistic philosophy, I don't have to sort that stuff out. I don't have to be vexed by that mystery. The Bible shows that God is sovereign. He does ordain all things. Evil doesn't just kind of happen because it's sovereign in some way. This view of dualism and open theism is not only unbiblical, it has no hope. There's no hope in it because it portrays God as though he were ignorant and powerless to prevent suffering. Suffering on that view is purposeless. Open theists will say, and there's been a, a debate between John Piper and Gregory Boyd, Gregory Boyd being one of the leading proponents of open theism, Piper uh, believing in the full sovereignty of God in all things. And one of the things that they were talking about was how do you counsel someone who's just gone through a catastrophe? And one of the things that Boyd says, I'm just going to paraphrase, is he comes to the bedside and he says, you just need to know God's fingerprints were nowhere to be found at the scene of this incident. And you can see how immediately that would give some sense of comfort. But then that comfort turns on you because you realize, wait, so so where was he? So there was no purpose in this? That this is not going to be redeemed? There's no sovereign God ordaining this for his own wise reasons that I don't understand right now, but he is wise and he is good and he is powerful. He, He checked out for the day? Did he not know? Was he ignorant of what was happening in my life the day that my world crumbled? If God wasn't able to stop this, what makes me think the future is secure in his hands? I can have no hope, no sense of security if God is on his heels when evil happens, trying to respond and restore things. No, instead we should trust the mystery of God's sovereignty, knowing that we don't understand all of his ways, but trusting he is good. He is wise. He's not out to get me. He has reasons for what he ordains. Even if the reasons, even if the things he ordains involve sin and suffering, even if the things he ordains involve malicious brothers like Joseph's, Potiphar's wife, a Babylonian exile, a cross between two thieves. If God is sovereign over those things, he is sovereign over them because he has wise reasons for being sovereign over them, for ordaining them. He ordains them for reasons we may not understand, but history is not a story of God fighting for control, fighting the devil and autonomous humans for the wheel of destiny. J.I. Packer writes, once and for all, let us rid our minds of the idea that things are as they are because God cannot help it. There's no hope in that kind of theology. Isaiah 46, 10 God says, I make known the end from the beginning, from ancient times, what is still to come. I say, my purpose will stand and I will do all that I please. God not only says that 750 years before Jesus, God will be able to say that when history as we know it 
is complete. He will be able to say, my purpose stood and I did all that I pleased. Open theists will say that God has bound himself to, they'll use this word, a policy of non-interference with free creatures. He's bound himself to that policy. I'm not going to, that's deism. That God kind of starts it all up and rolls the dice and hopes that it turns out well. He's not going to, rarely ever will he ever get involved in terms of sovereignty. That may make people feel more liberated in their choices, but think about it, and I think you'll realize that so-called policy spells disaster. If that is what God did, then that policy has spelled disaster from Genesis 3 to the present day. Because the 20th century, you might just think of persecution as one thing. The 20th century has seen more persecution than all prior centuries in Christian history combined. To that, what do these various views, what what do dualistic philosophers say, what do open theists say? They say humans are evil. And God's policy of non-interference has spelled thousands of persecutions. The Bible makes clear God is sovereign over persecution. God is sovereign over every martyrdom. Revelation 6.10, they cried out, namely the martyrs, with a loud voice, O sovereign Lord, holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth? Then they were each given a white robe and told to rest a little longer until the number of their fellow servants and their brothers should be complete, who were to be killed as they themselves had been. God is sovereign in this particular suffering as well. Why would God ever ordain that a man be tied to a stake and burned alive? Who knows? I mean, even if God explained it to us, does that mean we would understand it? God is all wise and so we bow our knees before a sovereign God and we say, you know all things. You are good in all your ways. One of the things that can be seen as a possible part of the answer to it has been said from early church history forward. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. If you look at the places where persecution is broken out, your finger is on the places where revival breaks out shortly after for the glory of God. Ultimately, we we can't explain why God ordains what he ordains. And here's where humility has to, again, come in. The Bible doesn't tell us we ever need to discover all of God's reasons for doing what he does, for saving who he does. The Bible tells us that several things are true with respect to God's sovereignty in history. Ready? He is a sovereign God. The Bible is clear on all of these. Nothing happens apart from his will. He never sins. He never lies. He is wise and good. His promises will all be fulfilled. At the end of the day, no enemy will be snickering in triumph. At the end of the day, none of God's purposes will have been thwarted. He will stand with his foot on the neck of every enemy. Satan, sin, death, and and all evil will be judged, and all rebellion will be judged. It's not as though God only gets glory in heaven. God gets glory for his mercy in heaven as we don our white robes and sing the song of the Lamb for eternity. But God gets glory for his justice in hell as those who have turned their fist and spurned the Most High God. 
are punished for cosmic treason of the God who made them. God's character doesn't bind him so that he has to be merciful to anyone. It's amazing that God is merciful to anyone. You know, we only have one precedent in history for a fall. Who fell before man fell? Yes, the angels. And they were offered no redemption. No redemption was offered. No gospel was preached to the demons in hell. They were offered no redemption and they cannot call God unfair. The only thing that they can call God is righteous and just. And that is one of the aspects of God's glory. God would have been right to judge you and me for our innumerable sins. But he sent Jesus to die for us and he didn't have to do that. He did that to display his goodness to us. If God is not sovereign, then we're right to sense that this world is spinning out of control. He keeps working to seize control of the steering wheel of history, but it's not that easy, you know? If God is not sovereign, the future is not certain. Jesus' return is still an open question. We'll see if that pans out because apparently there are forces at work that God's not aware of. He's going to try to kind of rope this this wild history in. This, though, can't be a description of the God that we find revealing himself in Scripture, who says, Psalm 33, 11, the plans of the Lord stand firm forever, the purposes of his heart through all generations. John Calvin writes, nothing that is attempted in opposition to God can ever be successful. So all that said, what do the doctrines of lordship do for me? For one, they vindicate hope and they vindicate a radically optimistic view of the future. The things that concern us as believers, the rise of moral relativism, postmodernism, degeneracy all around us, moral relativism and postmodernism are not rivals to the strength and power of God. And they are not occurring against God's will which is simply to say that you were right when you were a child singing. He's got the whole world in his hands. He's got the tiny little babies in his hands. He's got the wind and the rain in his hands. He's got you and me, brother, in his hands. Or an even better song that was sung in Psalm 24, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and all those who dwell in it. These truths are the ground of Christian hope and confidence. These truths anchor, are an anchor for the soul in times of suffering. This, this doctrine is not designed by God to stir controversy. It's designed by God to stir worship. Matter of fact, one of the last things that is ever sung in the, in the book of Revelation, one of the last kind of corporate shouts in Revelation chapter 19 is countless millions of believers saved by the lamb who was slain, crying out with one voice, hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory unto him. That's what we will shout in the last day, that it's good that God reigns. It's good for his people that he is over all things, that Lord Sabaoth is his name, that one little word shall fell him, the enemies of God, are no competition 
for him. So however we might feel about sovereignty when catastrophe strikes in our lives, we gain perspective when we're in heaven. When we stand in the presence of God, we will all revel in the fact that our God never revoked his sovereignty. Let's pray. Lord, your ways are higher than our ways. Your thoughts are not our thoughts. And we confess we don't understand this. We say with Paul after he talked about your sovereignty and your sovereign purposes in history and salvation, we say, who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has been his counselor? For of him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory. Your ways are unsearchable. Your judgments are past finding out. And yet we want to come to your word and everything that it says, even the things that go against our personal instincts, our cultural instincts, we want to accept you on your terms and believe that you're good, even if it's mysterious, how you can ordain the things that you've ordained, the things that have happened in history. We want to acknowledge in that we are but children. What do we know? You are the ancient of days. Reveal yourself to us, Lord. These are hard truths to take in because they don't match our own sensibilities in many cases. And we scratch our heads in wonder. Pray, Lord, that you would cause the seed of your word to go into our hearts and to bring forth, if not understanding, trust. Trust. We don't know. We don't know. We don't have to know. We're not God. But we love you. We acknowledge your faithfulness and your goodness and your mercy and your justice and your judgments. Oh Lord, be exalted in our eyes. May we see you as high and lifted up. Earth is your footstool. You sat enthroned over the floods. You are in control. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you.